You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Matt Cummings. All right, in this episode, you may know Morris Robinson as the former All-American college defensive lineman turned bass, but when he goes inside the huddle with Oliver, you'll see that he has more recently been cast as the center or big man, which is basketball terminology, and without George or Ashley here, we'll just have to look that up to explain. Plus, in the two-minute drill, taking a cue from Megan Rapinoe's announcement, will Chautauqua Opera also retire after this season? Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. Click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot take at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. And without further ado, Oliver Camacho, how's tennis? Uh, we'll talk about tennis maybe after the interview. Um, oh, so a little we have something So we have something to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> but I just realized that we need to change our opening call to action because Stitcher is our IP, just like Chautauqua seems like it's going. So mm. we can talk more about Spotify <laughs> and Apple Podcasts and not so much about Stitcher. Uh, Max, Matt Cummings, what is your opinion about Stitcher? Yeah, Max All Cummings. Right. <laughs> Max Cummings. <laughs> My first time on this panel. I've never met any of you people before. It's like that time I forgot your name mid-sentence and called you Wilson on a live episode. (laughs) So close. Uh, Yeah. Well, this is what happens when George isn't here. You know, uh, I step in. You know, I took a week off because it was, you know, July 4th. I was just sitting on the beach listening to the roar of the NASCAR engines. And I think there was something about the air quality that day that just wormed its way into my brain. And now I don't remember anyone's name. We should give him his props that the reason why George isn't here is because he was called in at the last minute and the 11th hour used your sports terminology right here uh, as the stage director for Opera Festival of Chicago's upcoming production Ooh. of Attila. Mm. Uh, he wasn't the original director announced, but he certainly is now. <laughs> uh, he's the hero that Attila deserves. Everyone's <laughs> favorite <laughs> opera about the fall of Rome. <laughs> Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Apparently, we are 24-hour-a-day Santa Fe opera content every episode this summer. Opera companies, do you see how much love you would get from the pod if only you would invite us to come to your festival? We're looking at you, Salzburg. This week, Oliver goes inside the huddle with bass Morris Robinson, making his Santa Fe opera debut and role debut as Deland in The Flying Dutchman. Let's enjoy Robinson and Little Wagner from last year's Tristan and Isolde in Seattle. Just a little bit of King Mark's aria from Wagner's Tristan und Isolde. That was from a 2022 production at Seattle Opera. And King Mark sung by <laughs> our guest today on Opera Box Score, Morris Robinson. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. How are you doing? I'm great. And, um, <laughs> you know, I've been listening to you sing, I feel like, for a very long time. But um, I feel like just in the past couple of years, you're profile has definitely raised, I think because of 
you know, various circumstances. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But right now you are making your role debut as Dalant in The Flying Dutchman at Santa Fe Opera. Yes, I am. Yeah. Uh, so uh, your your voice is, I, I mean, I guess it was made to sing Wagner, but I, I, is it safe to assume that you've just been kind of taking your time into getting into these roles just to protect it and to make sure that you have the stamina to this type of singing? You know, I did purposely stay away from Wagner. Um, <clears throat> I was just breaking into a, a point in my life where I was singing all the Verdi roles I want to sing. All the big, beautiful Verdians with, you know, all the beautiful legato lines, et cetera. But uh, I had sung Fazold and Das Rheingold quite successfully a few times. And Maestro James Conlon said, I want you to sing Landgraf and Tannhäuser. The moment I opened my mouth and started singing that, I started getting calls to sing Wagner, Wagner, Wagner. The business is really pushing me in that direction. My voice does feel comfortable in it. You know, it's almost like learning a separate language, though, because his style is so different than what I've done before. His poetry is so different than the the uh, the composition of poetry that I'm used to. But I'm falling in love with it. It's just really wonderful and refreshing and, you know, gives me a new purpose. And also, I feel like I have a place. So, yeah, I'm doing it. I'm I'm really getting into it. So yeah. Well, you sort of hinted at one of the to me the big challenges is that you know with Verdi, uh, there are clear phrases that have yeah. um, you know very natural climaxes within the phrase, and even the roles are like the meta version of that. Like there are climactic parts, and you know how to pace it. But with <laughs> Wagner, it just seems like a bunch of whole notes. <laughs> well, and that's true, except for this particular role, which is also different because this is almost like Wagner meets Mozart or Wagner's imitating Mozart. So it has a very classical feel to it. The role Dahlin doesn't have a lot of long sustained pitches. It's really a lot of patter and chatter. You know, he's a lot of spoken, almost frexima, just a, a, the amount of rapid notes that you have to sing here. And, you know, it's kind of like he wants a Wagnerian bass to sound like Leporello. So hmm. I have to, it's, it's, it's a, is yes yeah, a hybrid type of form so i'm enjoying that as well but yes it is the whole style is completely different from what i'm used to the pros everything but uh you know that's the way the business is taking me so i'm i'm embracing it with open arms and uh and going after it so yeah. so there's there's more to come in this territory is what you're oh suggesting. yeah from what i'm understanding yeah <laughs> <laughs> well um so you're making your role debut as dalant in the flying dutchman with elsa van and heaver singing senta Yes. And uh, Nicholas Brownlee, who just sort of yeah. like sort of came out of nowhere as a Wagnerian. I mean, we've been listening to Nicholas Brownlee sing for a while now, but all of a sudden, like, I feel like there was just this shift. And now, yeah. now he's doing he's doing that. <laughs> Nicholas Brownlee, I met him years ago. He was a young artist in L.A. And he was covering me uh, in uh, Mozart's Abduction from Seraglio. And I remember walking by a practice room one day and hearing him sing and thought, who the heck is that guy? You know, he was good. So I knew he was headed in this direction with a voice like that, you know, the size and the color. I knew he was heading in this direction and uh, he's doing the right thing. I think he sounds amazing. Elsa is amazing. It's an amazing cast top to bottom. They brought Chad Sheldon in at the last minute, who is the perfect fit because he has a great voice. It's just, it's a great cast. The conductor's incredible. The orchestra sounds amazing. Great production. So I know this isn't a commercial to support the show, but it's certainly one that, everyone should come out and see because it's going to be one of the best casts that you'll ever see in this 
part of the world. So yeah. Well, Opera Box Score is shamelessly a friend of Santa Fe Opera, so we're we're happy to promote the show. How is yeah, it? Uh, how how do you like that space? And also, uh, I'd love to give you a chance to uh, shout out uh, how they treat their artists. If you have something oh. nice to say about. Can I say the good things first? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Since we had a friendly operation here for Santa Fe Opera, they treat us like they treat us like golden. I mean, it's amazing. Um, you know, they provide you somewhere to live. They give you a car. They answer the phone when you call them. I had some issues when I first got here. They took care of that. You know, it's just a wonderful company, wonderful atmosphere, very familial. Uh, and you know, it's it's a great town. It's kind of away from everything, so you really get to concentrate on the music. I found myself today going to retrieve a package that was sent to me, but walking into rehearsals and just hearing some of my friends and colleagues that I've done other things with do other roles. You all saw Mary Elizabeth Williams. I saw Ray Ann Bryce Davis. I saw uh, 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 J James Creswell, you know, just people I've worked with for years and just seeing them here and seeing them do their art. Not, you know, we're not on the same stage. I'm not, I have no reason to be there, but you're kind of at opera camp, like you have the ability to kind of just go in and out and hear different things and appreciate different composers and hear your, your friends do their artistry with a wonderful background all the time because everything's pretty much outdoors. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So it's, it's a great environment. That being said, it's <laughs> almost impossible to see here. <laughs> really? 7,200 feet above sea level, you know, uh, oh, okay. it took a lot to get acclimated to. Uh, and it's a desert on top of that. So it's very dry. Mm -hmm. um, there's very little oxygen. So I, it takes you about three weeks to get acclimated vocally. Mm -hmm. And right at the end of two and a half weeks, I left to go take my kid to college. And the biggest mistake was I was at sea level in Charleston, South Carolina. And I could breathe forever. I felt like I could run a marathon. Then I came back two days later and almost had to start over again. But yeah, just getting acclimated is the hardest part. And because it's an outdoor venue for the most part, all the shows start at night. And depending on what the Lord said the weather is going to be that day, you will have to work with whatever voice you have on that particular night. So it's been interesting, but it's been fun. You know, we're all professionals and we know how to work with what we have. So it's, it's part of the challenge, but it's also one part of the beauty of being involved with a company like this in this type of space. So very appreciative and, and, and enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, I famously uh, have my stomach in knots when I get up there every year, it takes me like three or four days to be able to feel normal, which is good. It's sort of like a Santa Fe diet. <laughs> How about that? Um, so on a different topic, uh, a few years ago, you participated in uh a panel discussion uh, for Los Angeles Opera, uh, hosted by Janae Bridges with Julia Bullock and Karen Slack and Russell Thomas. And uh, I forget, was there anybody else in there? Oh, Larry Brownlee. Larry Brownlee. Yeah. Uh, and this was sort of that moment in 2020 when um, arts organizations were sort of taking a look at themselves and saying, are we racist? <laughs> Yeah, And uh, I don't know if there's anything that came out of that conversation you feel, well, you said to me before we started recording that you like, you shot the fire that was, or you, you, you shot the, yeah, that was heard fired by, the shot. <laughs> they fired the shot that, um, that was heard by all the opera companies. Uh, yeah. Do you want to revisit one of your stances from that conversation? Well, we were talking about, you know, inequality in casting and participation and representation and all that. And I said, uh, you know, I find it funny and this is going to come as a shock to people. But in mind you, we had been it was pretty chilled out. So we we're drinking. I had a couple of glasses of cognac and I'm just talking freely. 
And then the facts, and these are facts, and, and you'll hear what I'm saying. The shot heard around the world, you know, without me even knowing was, I've been in this business over 20 years. I've sung at every major opera house in our country, and I've never been directed by a Black director, conducted by a Black conductor, directed by, I never had a Black stagehand, I never had a Black CEO, I never had a Black uh, president of the board, and I've never had a Black person hire me yeah, as an artistic administrator for 20, over 20 years, and that's every opera house in America. And then there was silence, and then, <laughs> The phone started ringing, the emails started lighting up, the comments started lighting up. And I think at that moment, you know, I was speaking about the African-American experience because that's who was on the uh, on the call. But, you know, I think the opera world started looking at itself from every every vantage point and saying, you know what? Dang, he's right. And we need to fix that. And uh, and that's kind of what started that whole, this whole movement, which I think is in action right now. So, yeah. Well, about three years later, what is the report card? <laughs> Report card for effort is an A. Mm -hmm. The report card for results is uh, still to be determined. I don't know if I can put a solid letter on it, but I would say B minus, C plus. You know, uh, the big guys, the big companies are taking the bull by the horns, and whether they're doing the right thing or not, they are at least trying to address it. And I say that tongue in cheek. I think that there's some wonderful efforts being made. I think there are some mistakes being made, and that's going to happen. But just last week, if I'm not mistaken, one of my dear friends, Quincy Roberts, became the first Black president of a board at a major opera company. He was elected as president of the board of Dallas Opera. Now, here's a guy that, you know, I've been knowing him since he was a senior. And I've sung at Dallas Opera eight or nine times, and he's always been in the chorus. He's still, you know, with music. He owns a very successful trucking company. And uh, <laughs> one of my funny stories is I was singing in Dallas and working in L.A. and had to take an emergency flight to Detroit to do something to jump in a touring dog and I parked my Hummer at his house for like a month. <laughs> like we're friend friends, you know, just, and so, so to see that this thing has taken effect and actually affected people that I'm close to and that I know means a lot, but you know, there are lots of efforts being made as you probably know, I'm the advisor artistically to Cincinnati opera and Atlanta opera. Those two companies have kind of led the charge in their own way of trying to address this. Um, you know, they, they had a, a very diverse cast of a Carmen. We had a really diverse cast of Naida this year. Uh, Atlanta Opera has a project that we'll talk about later. Uh, Cincinnati Opera secured this huge Mellon grant for millions of dollars to put on black works by black composers and black directors and black librettists. Uh, so yeah, the, the opera world is, you know, I mean, look at what happened at the Metropolitan Opera the last two years. They've had the first opera written by a black composer and it opened the season, you know, and <clears throat> they're doing important investment. They're, they're casting lots of African-Americans in those productions and making sure that they're conscious that they hired a, 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 a chief diversity officer for the first time, you know, and uh, yeah, it's, there's so many things to talk about that are positive. Um, LA Opera doing some wonderful things. Dallas Opera, of course, doing a lot of wonderful things. Yeah, I, I would have to say, now there are smaller companies in other situations, which I'm not familiar with, I'm not in touch with, that could use a, you know, a, a cabal prod, if you will, but in general, I think the entire industry is considering the lack thereof and trying to address it in a positive way. So, well, without naming names or being specific about who is uh, doing who needs improvement, uh, you said that you know not everything has worked. Uh, what are some examples of some initiatives that you think maybe were misguided or weren't executed properly? I will not go into specifics, but I'll say this in general, and I think you'll get an idea, and the listeners will get an idea. 
The problem with, with, with situations like this is um, the majority reacts instantaneously and the desire is to correct something rapidly that has been in development for a very long time. So there is no real quick fix. And the attempt to implement quick fixes sometimes is not the right thing to do. Uh, and without pointing out specific examples, you know, we can go through the industry and see how things have happened. You know, really quick fix without thinking things totally through. Those things can backfire. And that's with anything in life. So there have been lots of examples of that. And, you know, like I said, you have to give them an A for effort, but the execution may not have been the most strategic aspect of what they came up with. So as people try and fail and try and succeed and examples of failure and examples of su 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 success are implemented and, uh, and seen, then they can be imitated and implemented also in the positive way. So yeah, this, it's just the natural reaction that let's hurry up and fix this. And it doesn't really work that way all the time. You're, you're talking about a, an art form, a system, a government, <laughs> uh, a class of folks, you know, a, a sect of society where, you know, the rapid infiltration just can't happen. There has to be a natural build. And, you know, these things are built on relationships and time and effort and communities and audiences and subject matter and, and material and, and artists and all that stuff. So, you know, you have to put a lot of pieces in place in order to affect the bottom line. So. Well, you, we, you hinted at uh, sort of the initiative at Atlanta Opera, which you are uh, artistic advisor of, uh, and the 96 Aura Opera Project, which just, uh, I don't know what year you're in, in that initiative, if it's the second season of that, or if it was the first season, the second yeah, season, uh, just just had its performances last month. Uh, can you fill us in on what is the 96 Hour Opera Project and what it's uh, how it's doing in its second year? Yeah, it's, it's an exciting attempt to correct the wrong. We talk about putting on work from disenfranchised communities, and we would love to do that, but what you find is there's not a lot of that in the canon, right? It's just been either excluded or there's lack of participation because there was really no outlet or venue in which to display this type of art form. So it wasn't done a lot. And then if there is stuff in the canon, now the, the, the desire is to have things that are, rep, that are relatable to the society in which you exist, relatable to the community in which you serve. So the 96-hour opera project is trying to address both of those things, filling the pipeline with materials, utilizing the talents of uh, disenfranchised and underutilized and overlooked communities and people in those communities, but also trying to find re relatable material to the communities in which we live. So in an effort to address all three of those things, we have this 96 hour opera project where contestants submit, uh, <clears throat> they submit their work, they submit writing, they submit uh, musical writing. Yeah, 10, 10 minute compositions, correct? 10 minute compositions based on subject matter that we decide and vote on that's relatable and uh they have a they have 96 hours from the beginning to presentation to kind of put it all together oh it's and, like uh it's like that fast yeah that's why it's called 96 hours yeah it's rapid fire you know oh, they, wow. they, they don't even <laughs> meet until 96 hours before it starts and they have to pass out the music put it all together uh you know rehearse it stage it and present it within 96 hours and, but, you know, the response has been, it's kind of a, a game show type mentality 
But you'd be surprised at some of the level of art that we've been able to uncover just because of that. There's a prize involved, obviously, and the winner gets the, uh, the guaranteed contract and a large sum of money and a contract to have Atlanta Opera co-produce this, this project for them. So uh, we're at number two, year number two, and uh, we showed a piece of the first one that won this year. It was amazing, you know, and uh, the audience, audience response from every community was very excited and very positive. And, you know, not only are we discovering new talent when it comes to librettists and composers, but we're, we're discovering new talent when it comes to stage directors and new talent when it comes to singers. Like we have these, you know, we have some local artists in Atlanta that have sung with the chorus or have done other things or professors at schools. You'd be amazed at how good they are. So they just weren't on that circuit. So they're getting opportunities. The community's getting opportunities. This is work and stories that's relatable to Georgia, relatable to Atlanta. So it means something to the community. And, you know, every side of the coin is interested in this, in this subject matter. So, you know, we're not just getting black audiences, we're getting everybody because everyone has a vested interest in the environment in which they lived in from whence it came. So it's it's really wonderful. It's just, it's a great project. That's one example. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're getting a good audience response, but um, my question is, is the goal for there to be enough repertoire out there so that you always have uh, stories that the audience relates to, new stories that the audience can relate to, or is it for them to discover some of the masterpieces of the repertoire, the old repertoire from the canon, so that they will become fans of the art form? I understand the first part of the question. I don't understand the second part of the question. So if you're bringing in the community uh, to maybe come to Atlanta Opera for the first time to hear mm -hmm. the the winning uh, pieces of the 96 Opera Project, is yeah. there a hope that they will love some part of this and be curious about going to hear you sing in Nabucco or oh, something yeah. like that? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that I mean, <clears throat> prior to the 96 Hour Opera Project, this is how these things work. Let's just take that out the equation and say they weren't coming to hear some new relatable material by some mm. black composer that came from Atlanta. If I could just get people to come to the opera house and hear me sing Nabucco or Spadafucile or whatever, you would be surprised at how many people come back, not just to hear me, but go back because it was a great evening or they enjoyed it. I never would have thought I would have enjoyed this this isn't something we normally do. I get to dress up. We get to have dinner beforehand. We have drinks in the lobby. It's beautiful music. I turn myself up. We're drawn into the... Sometimes it's just about exposure, you know? So to, to, to help facilitate all of these uh, negatives, uh, delinquencies, you know, we have material that will bring you in done by people that you can relate to. And if you get the bug and you enjoy it, Nine times out of ten, you're going to come back and see Carmen as well. You're going to come back and see the Taberflitter, or you know. So it's the, the desire is yes to improve the overall experience, both from this side of the stage and that side of the stage. I think that's the overall goal. So whenever, yeah, whenever anybody writes about you, uh, it always seems to be like in the first paragraph that you have this uh, other identity, your your pre-opera singing identity as a football player. <laughs> yeah. um so i mean i think that is always included in you know these pieces and in your bio to make you seem more relatable um how do you feel about that you know 
contextualization of your <clears throat> of your identity um, to make people feel is it to make people feel comfortable or to make people like understand you're a big guy or like I don't really know why that that is you know include like we don't put the bios of people like well so and so tenor used to be a what did you say own a truck company with this yeah 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 <laughs> no I think that I. Uh... I think the answer is yes. Uh, sometimes it's utilized to make me and make opera seem less uh, intimidating and more relatable. So the young lady that wants to go can talk her husband to get off the couch from ESPN on Saturday and come see Rigoletto instead. You know, uh, sometimes it's just to show the characterization of the relatability to somebody that's actually on the stage that looks like the community, that looks like that's different, but also, you know, it's, it's to draw in that type of thing. The biggest thing early on in my career, and still to this day, because now, you know, I'm, I'm 54, I'm not 20. So I think that the biggest thing is just the fascination that one can start from this place and end up in this place. Uh, that is a fascination that has been both wonderful and, and, uh, and it's, been, uh, it's been a liability sometimes in some people's minds when you don't go to conservatory when you don't study all the languages and the portraits and the style, and you you walk into this thing at 30, there's not a lot of people that believe that, you know, you're the real deal. It's, they think more of it as being some phantasmal type of thing. And I'm the real deal. You know, I worked my tail off to get to this level. But, uh, you know, just I think the story is, is very relatable to any young person out there or someone our age that has not pursued that which they love, that, that it's never too late. And if you put your mind to it and you have the talent, and you work really, really hard, you can break into any field. And I think that the relatability from my standpoint is, you know, being a former athlete has helped me in this field. You know, I call these transferable skills all the time. Discipline, personal accountability, knowing how to operate within a team, um, <clears throat> knowing how to make changes on the fly, not being intimidated by big crowds, not being intimidated by intimidating people, you know, having the courage and the strength and the intestinal fortitude to try things. All that stuff comes into play every single time I walk out on stage and walk into a rehearsal. So, well, let's ex extend the metaphor. Then uh, let's talk about uh, one of the recent. Will you sing King Philip or will you sing Grand Inquisitor in sports terms? What happened? <laughs> what happened with that uh, King Philip you were supposed to sing? Well, yeah. So <clears throat> we had the perfect only cast. sports metaphors. I'm sorry. <laughs> Only in sports metaphors. <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. Okay. You, is, you, yeah, okay. you do it however you want. Just tell us a story. <laughs> no, okay. So, yeah. So, okay. I've been known to be the type of player that comes off the bench and scores <laughs> with lots of highlights. But I've never been in the starting five, like the guy that kind of runs the show. So, you know, I had an opportunity in this particular instance to come out and play point guard for the first time. But if I'm playing point guard, you're going to need another big man, right? Because this is basketball, but it's still sports. You're going to need another big <laughs> man. And I'm usually the big man, but we found a bigger man. Like, so, so Andrea Silvestrelli was included. He's going to play the Inquisitor. He has a big, strong voice. It balances out with me perfectly fine. And it was going to be the perfect match. And then we had all the rest of the people to kind of surround and make a beautiful cast. And then the pandemic hit. <clears throat> so that got canceled. And then he moved back to Italy and wasn't coming back. So there was a hard search to try to find somebody else that could be this guy so I can play, so I can run the point. You know, when Magic Johnson ran the point guard and ended up having to play center, it's kind of the opposite of that. So is this working? 
you caught me off guard. This is awesome. No, this is awesome. All right, look, keep going, so, please. <laughs> so, so coach pulled me aside and said, "Look, bro, we want you to run point, and I think you deserve to run point. But I need you to think big picture. This is the team we're trying to win this championship, and I need you to go back and be the big man in the middle. I need you to be Shaq. I'm bringing in somebody else that can run the point. I know I can run point, but dang, I, they need a big man, you know. So." I'm going to have to go back and play big man. And from what I understand now, they found another point guard. And it makes sense. You know, I, I couldn't possibly, if you have, if you have Shaq or someone like, let's say, what's the guy's name, Jovich, that, that's a seven-footer that can dribble. If he can play point in this system, yes. But if you need someone that's 6'11 on the block, you're not going to let him run point and put a 6'1 person on the block. So it makes sense. That's what happened. So I had to switch back up and go back to the big man position. So I'll be singing Inquisitor. I will not be singing King Filippo. And I want to, but because of the way my voice is constructed and the way I sound and the size of my voice, you know, the Inquisitor, the way Verdi wrote it, has to be more impactful, sing louder, have a, a, a stronger presence than the Philip. That's how it's written. And it doesn't work if the voice doesn't match that. So unless we're going to reincarnate some of these heavy hitters from back in the day, I'm the Inquisitor right now. So, like you said, Mat Mati Tavala, Mati Tavala, yeah. Kurt Moe, you know, yeah. uh, Mati Salman, and you know, you got to have those types of guys to kind of balance out me. What was that? Was it Robert Robert Lloyd? Is that another Robert one? Lloyd would be a good one. Uh, yeah. You know, er Eric Halverson. You know, these guys yeah. when they yeah. walk in the room, uh, Pata Bucciolatte. Yeah. When they walk in the room and start talking, I feel like Minnie Mouse. So, <laughs> you know, and I I looked up to these guys, but None of them, most of them aren't singing anymore. So it's kind of like I'm, I'm them, and I gotta, you know, I gotta compliment okay. the next guy. So, you know. so if you get cast with Solomon Howard, who sings what? That's a good question. Uh, he's also my little brother. Yeah, he covered me singing Inquisitor, and he sang the Herald, mm -hmm. and he just sang it at in Chicago. Yeah, with somebody else. But our voices are very similar. But I'm a darker. I'm a darker voice than he is. Um, and Solomon's voice really, in my opinion, is a, is a tad bit lighter and more, he probably has more upper range. He's probably more of a bass baritone that just happens to have low notes. I'm more of a bass bass that happens to have high notes. So he would have to sing Filippo and I'd sing the Inquisitor. Hmm. I'd want that, in fact. Oh, that's so You know sweet. why? No, why? no. Because the Inquisitor always wins. I want to, I want to choke him out. I want to, I want to set the record straight that I'm the bad ass and you're not. So, <laughs> and that's interesting because I was going to, I was supposed to go to a bar and play the drum team last night. So we're really cool. I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how that would pair up. But I would see him as a crown to my porgy. You know, he has the look. He has the whole thing. Um, I'm the darker. I'm the big brother. I'm the I'm the enforcer still. So. The Flying Dutchman. So you can see how competitive I am. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to let him win, no. So yeah. Uh, the Flying Dutchman can be heard at Santa Fe Opera until August 25th. Morris Robinson, thank you so much for coming to Opera Box Score. Thank you. I'm enjoy I enjoy being here. Thank you so much for having me.
Just a little bit of the Grand Inquisitor scene from Verdi's Don Carlos featuring our guest, Morris Robinson. Thank you so much to Morris for being a guest and to Santa Fe Opera for making him available to us and for our own George Sudequist for organizing that interview. And then abandoning us for Attila. Uh, (laughs) Oliver, the entire podcast listenership has been waiting with bated breath for the tennis news that you teased at the beginning of this episode. Yeah, hook him at the top and let's keep him. Hit, hit us with that with that good, juicy sports talk. Okay, so the number one and two seeds for this year's Wimbledon were Carlos Alcaraz in the number one slot and Novak Djokovic in the number two slot, who is probably going to win it all. And there have been some interesting twists and turns, and one might have thought that Matteo Berrettini was going to present... Uh, uh, the biggest obstacle for Carlos Alcaraz. And it looked, if you were watching the match earlier today, it looked like Matteo might have just done it. If you remember Matteo Berrettini, we talked about when he became a Hugo Boss <laughs> brand ambassador <laughs> earlier this year. Uh, and he seemed to have done this brand ambassadorship because his tennis career was falling apart. Uh, last year, he was the favorite to win Wimbledon, but then he came down with COVID literally at the start of the tournament. But he's back after a couple of injuries, and he was playing so, so well in this uh, in this last week. But Carlos Alcaraz proved too much to handle. And uh, yeah, he sort of fizzed out after the first set, which he took. And Novak Djokovic, yeah, had to face all sorts of obstacles, but he is getting through. And I think by this time next week, we will say that Novak Djokovic has his next uh, Grand Slam. He'll be at 24. Will that make him uh, the grandiest slammiest? Ugh, I mean, I really hope that Carlos Alcaraz <laughs> can can win it all. But um, there is sort of a, a, a Cinderella story. Um, a guy named Eubanks, uh, Christopher Eubanks, or I forget his name, but he's like a, a journeyman uh, player. He's like not in the top 100, and he's like been playing in the um, – you know, not the minor leagues, but the uh, whatever league that is that the, the Mixolydian leagues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was he's a music going. Joke. He he won his first title uh, right before Wimbledon, the warm up, the warm up tournament, and he earlier today beat Stefanos Tsitsipas, uh, the gorgeous Greek player who is the biggest fan of himself. Uh, who I actually also <laughs> like because he is quite beautiful. He the also second beat, biggest fan of him. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also beat uh, Cam Nori, the uh, hometown hero there in, at Wimbledon, uh, who is ranked 12. So he's having an amazing tournament. Even if he, you know, uh, hits a brick wall when he faces Daniel Medvedev uh, in the quarterfinal rounds, um, he has a lot to be proud of. So congratulations to... Christopher Eubanks, the only the third Black American to reach the quarterfinals at Wimbledon since the start of the Open Era, uh, joining Arthur Ashe and a guy named Molly Vi Washington, who I've never heard of before. Anyway, that's your Wimbledon update. Novak Djokovic is probably going to win, or maybe Carlos Alcaraz. That report was certainly worth the wait, Oliver. That was a <laughs> solid three minutes of tennis content, which yes. I'm sure is what everyone tunes in for. So now I guess we have to move on Thanks. to the much lesser appendix of a segment, the two-minute drill after that three minutes of tennis. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher if you can find it. And Spotify, click follow on Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign. You know the drill. Two-minute drill. 
This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Chautauqua Opera Company announced, quote-unquote, significant restructuring beginning in the festival's 2025 season. The company will no longer be presenting mainstage opera productions, instead offering workshop productions of new works. Absorbing such a significant cut in the operating budget of the opera company and conservatory is devastating in many ways, said general and artistic director Stephen Osgood. It means a company of almost 100 years will no longer build and produce opera for the Chautauqua community. And it means the closing of our shops, which have inspired artists to return to Chautauqua year after year. In response to the news, baritone Michael Chioldi took to social media to solicit testimonials for the beleaguered company, saying, quote, If you have not heard, the board of directors of the Chautauqua Institute has decided to cut the Chautauqua Opera in a very severe way. I cut you. I am investigating with the help of several others who consider this an essential art form and have come through or have had some connection with the Chautauqua Opera. Please share this and help to get the word out. Michael, we are doing our part. Birgitta Fassbender is not such a fan of Jonas Kaufmann's appointment as intendant of the Tiroler Festspiele Earl, saying he, quote, hardly meets the criteria to do so. Though Fassbender herself, a former intendant of the same festival, conceded that the tenor's name could help attract a larger audience, she bemoaned the, quote, concession to the event culture, where big names count more than artistic quality in itself. Dan Birgitta, tell us how you really feel. The Brooklyn Academy of Music has laid off 13% of its staff members and reduced its programming in an attempt to address a, quote, sizable structural deficit. BAM President Gina Duncan described the layoff as an attempt to, quote, weather the downturn in charitable giving for the arts and address an outdated business model that heavily relies on a shrinking donor base. Among the programming reductions is this fall's Next Wave Festival, which will consist of seven programs this year, down from 13 in 2022. This year's Opus Classique winners include soprano Osmic Gregorian as Female Singer of the Year for her debut album, Dissonance, and friend of the show Jakub Josef Orlinski as Male Singer of the Year for Farewells, his album of Polish art song with pianist Michal Biel. Young Talent of the Year was given to Jonathan Tettleman for his album of opera arias, and Julia Bullock for Walking in the Dark, which includes her performance of Friend of the Show, Samuel Barber's Knoxville, Summer of 1915. Summer of 1915 is a friend of the show, not Samuel Barber. The Solo Singing Award was given to Friend of the Show regular Muleman for her concept album, Fairy Tales, and Andre Schuen for Schwangesang with pianist Daniel Haida. Der Freischutz won the opera recording category featuring Paulina Pasterschak and Maximilian Schmidt in the recording led by Rene Jakob with the Freiburg Baroque Orchestra. The best world premiere recording was awarded to Lunea, Heinz Holliger's 2018 opera based on the life of poet Nicolaus Lanau. The Opus Classic Awards ceremony will be held in October in Berlin. Conductor Pedro Vasquez Marin is currently under investigation following accusations from two former private students who say the conductor sexually abused them while they were underage. Vasquez was arrested in April but released by the court under restraining order and has resigned from his position at Real Orchestra Sinfonica di Sevilla. In an update to a prior drill story, AGMA has filed unfair labor practices complaints as well as a grievance against Central City Opera for circumventing their collective bargaining agreement by illegally subcontracting dancers. AGMA learned of the non-union contracts after CCO withheld payment for weeks of work until the dancers refused to show up to a rehearsal on June 28th. 
Operalia announced its 34 participants for the 2023 competition, including friend of the show Elena Villalon as one of the eight singers representing the U.S. U.S.A. U.S.A. And subject of the show, countertenor Mayan Licht, my sopranist of choice. The contest begins on October 30th and will be hosted in Cape Town, South Africa. The drip, drip, drip you may be hearing is the sound of the police confiscating over 126,000 euro from Alexander Pereira, the accused embezzler-in-chief of Maggio Musicale Fiorentino. Pereira is alleged to have used the foundation's credit card for, quote, private non-contractual expenses, including relocations, hotel stays, and plane or helicopter flights, allegedly. Allegedly. Are, are we legally covered now? Royal Opera House is opening up its archives of opera and ballet performances and expanding the catalog of its streaming services. Well, they weren't generally available to audiences beyond highlight clips on YouTube, but now we have the ability to release those performances, said Chief Technology Opfer Officer and most Britishly named person, James Whitebread. <laughs> <laughs> France's Ministry of Culture has promoted Emmanuel Ayim to the rank of Commander of the Order of Arts and Letters for her service to Baroque music. The conductor and harpsichordist is the founder of Le Concert d'Astre and was the first female conductor of Lyric Opera Chicago in 2007. That was a long time ago, really. It was. Kathleen Battle will be recognized at the Cincinnati Black Music Walk of Fame for her contributions to the music industry. Battle's music career will be celebrated with a special interactive kiosk that will debut at the historic grand opening of the installation. David Portillo has been awarded the Sphinx Medal of Excellence, which is given in recognition of extraordinary classical Black and Latinx musicians early in their careers. The award is given to three artists who demonstrate artistic excellence, outstanding work ethic, a spirit of determination, and an ongoing commitment to leadership in their communities. And it includes a $50,000 career grant this year, some of which used to be Lizzo's royalties for About Dan Time. Deborah Brevoort will receive her own major award, one just for opera's wordsmiths, as the recipient of the 2023 Campbell Opera Librettist Prize. Deborah is an ideal choice for this year's prize, said friend of the show and award patron Mark Campbell. She has a history of writing librettos that connect directly with audiences and a profound understanding of the craft that goes into this very specialized art form. In trade news, Daniele Gatti will be the new chief conductor of Staatskapelle Dresden. Bayerische Staatsoper has appointed Christopher Heil <laughs> to be its new chorus director. Hungarian state opera tapped Mer Martin Rania as its new principal conductor. And Jose Miguel Perez Sierra is in as the new music director for Madrid's Teatro de la Zarzuela. On the disabled list, in an update to a story from a previous drill, Russian bass Ildar Abdrazakov has cancelled all upcoming performances in July for family reasons. Alexander Tsimbaluk will instead perform as Boris Gudunov, and John Relier will replace Abdurazakov as Filippo in Don Carlo. Stephen Gould has withdrawn from this year's Bayreuth Festival for medical reasons. Andreas Schager will take over as Siegfried and go to Demerung. Friend of the show, Clay Hilly as Tristan, and Klaus Florian Vogt as Tannhäuser. And that's not the end of it. Joseph Kalea has withdrawn from Parsifal due to a persistent throat infection. Andrea Schager will also take over in that role. Hexit stage right. English tenor Graham Clark, the international Wagnerian and longtime principal artist at English National Opera, has died at 81. And American tenor Kenneth Rigel, two-time Grammy Award nominee and stalwart of the Met stage, has died at 85. Korean soprano Lee Sang-un was found dead in her dressing room minutes before performance of Carmina Burana. Police do not suspect foul play, and no cause of death has been made available as of this recording. 
she was 46. Verdi historian and author George W. Martin has died at 97. Martin donated the largest collection of Verdi memorabilia ever to be in private ownership to the Pierpoint Morgan Library in 1992. And on this day, July 10th, premieres include Giovanni Bononcini's Endymione in Vienna in 1706, and another Bononcini show, Muzio Scevola, also in Vienna in 1710. <laughs> hey, you're going to go check out the new Bononcini show? <laughs> in 1784, Domenico Cimarosa's L'Olimpiade premiered in Vicenza, and a different Domenico, Domenico Della Maria, had a premiere called L'Opera Comique. That is the name of the show, not the venue, but it did premiere in Paris in 1798. In 1920, John Francesco Malipiero's Orfeo premiered in Paris. In 1951, Luigi Nono's Polyphonica Monodia Ritmica, also known as Weston's favorite opera, premiered in <laughs> Darmstadt in 1951. And in 1978, it was the first performance of Aribert Reimann's Lear in Munich, which featured Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau imaginably as King Lear. Birthdays in uh, on July 10th include Austrian soprano, Amalie Materna, who created the role of Kundry in Parsifal and sang in the first complete ring cycle as Brunhilde in Bayreuth in 1844 she was born. In 1888, Polish soprano Vera Schwartz was born in Zagreb. She created the role of Lisa in Lehar's Landes Lachens and sang in the premiere of his Paganini and Zarevich. Two Lehar, three Lehar operas. She was a Lehar specialist, apparently. In 1895, Weston's favorite composer Karl Orff was born <laughs> in Munich. In 1902, Russian tenor Sergei Lemeshev was born. He was one of the leading tenors of the Bolshoi between 1930 and 1950. The great Abe was born in Naples in 1904. And the great Luba Velich was born in Bulgaria, in Velichkova, Bulgaria, in 1913. Scottish bass Ian Wallace was born in London in 1919. Metal-soprano Josephine Vesey was born in London in 1930. Go for London. In 1933, the great American songstress Jan Degatani was born in... Uh, it doesn't say where, but she was born. In 1940, we... Allegedly. Allegedly born. <laughs> uh, American soprano Helen Donat was born in Corpus Christi, Texas. Uh, more birthdays include Graham Johnson, uh, English pianist and accompanist to the stars. And the author of the complete Schubert edition, the curator of the complete Schubert edition for Hyperion. And in this, on this day in 1969, two German artists were born, soprano Julianne Bansa and a tenor who is the arch enemy of Brigitte Fassbender, Jonas Kaufmann. <laughs> and that's your 40-minute drill.
So that was a little excerpt of Ljuba Velic singing the final scene from Zalame at the Met in 1949. And if you were to ask most people about like what recordings of Zalame they listen to, there are a lot of really good ones out there. There's the Nilsson, there's the Barons one that's in our Hall of Fame. Thank you, Weston. Um, yes, yes, yes. And I personally am someone who has a very hard time listening to recordings that are from before like 1950. But... Mm. I think that one glaring example of that, uh, or sorry, one glaring exception to that is this Village Salome, which is so unbelievably good. Like, there's just something about her <laughs> voice that's so pure and so clear and so girlish, but also, like, sounds immense at the same time. And the way that she just rides over that orchestra comes through on the recording in a way that you that I really don't expect to hear from live recordings from the 40s. Yeah. And I just think it's an astounding performance. It's a great hipster choice, too. If you ever want to, like, seem as cool as Matt Cummings as a party, bring up the uh, the Village recording of Zalame from 1949. The Village Zalame was apparently what Leontine Price saw that made her want to be a professional opera singer. So you could do worse yeah absolutely I want one of the opera box course for fans to tell us how many times we've used either strauss wagner mozart or verdi uh as the uh, composer of the clip to get out of on this day we are part of the problem i get the feeling it's going to be strauss is going to be the the composer who wins that contest uh but anyway it was <laughs> but a... this is like thorny strauss that's totally <laughs> different than goopy strauss <laughs> july 10th was a great day uh in the history of music i mean we had uh della maria's l'opera comique and luigi nonno's <laughs> polyphonica monodia ritmica <laughs> but I, no I, I, some I mean, great and then birthdays. of course lear which is uh we all sing that you know uh, <laughs> in the shower you know but really, uh, I, I mean, like, we, we could spend time talking about so many of these artists, Graham like, Johnson. As I was adding Jen- them to the list, I was like, oh, I'll do a Skignani clip. Oh, no, I'll do a, a Josephine Vesey clip. Oh, no, I'll yeah. do a Helen Tonoff clip. Like, yeah. it's so hard to pick. No, I mean, we could really spend, that's like a Hall of Fame day, you know. You could even have done Jonas uh, Kaufman's All I Want for Christmas is You, which is... <laughs> I feel like that gets enough airtime on this show without <laughs> being our excerpt clip. Uh, ap- apparently, Birgitta uh, 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 Fassbender would agree with us that Jonas gets too much airtime. What an absolutely wait, brutal wait, 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 thing to say. We're, we're, not, we're not there yet. We're, oh, we're, we're not, not there talking, yet? We're, we're, no, we're, we're building up we're, to we're it? We're still talking about... Um, on this Birthdays. day. So if I could pick one out of this crowd that I would have featured, like to have featured, I think it would have been um, Janda Gatani, uh, who was, you know, a specialist in new music, which is not my thing. Uh, but she also was a specialist in uh, early music, which is my thing, and a specialist in art song. Uh, she is famously... She is famously on the world premiere recording of George Crumb's Ancient Voices of Children, which I think was mm, the best-selling classical album of whatever year that came out in like 1971 or 70, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And she's one of the singers on the uh, the Graham Johnson curated Hyperion Complete Schubert yes. edition. But for me, the recording that breaks my heart when I hear it is her... Um, Mahler, one of the song cycles, I forget which one's on there, but also the um, Les Nuits d'été, which she recorded with the chamber orchestra in a um, orchestration, a reduced orchestration. And I think it might have been made especially for her because she was already suffering from um, the onset of cancer. 
mm-hmm. and she uh, she died at the age of fifty six. Uh, so she was ill when she recorded that um, "Les Nuits d'Été," and if you don't know that song cycle, which we should probably do a Hall of Fame of on one day, that'd it be is a good a, one. It is mostly a meditation on death and like separation from a loved one. And uh, yeah, that that something version, Berlioz knew a lot about. Yeah, that famously goes right to the heart. Like I, I don't know if I can get through listening to that one all the time because it's so emotional. So if you don't know the singer Jandigatani, I recommend you start with her Les Nuits d'Été and then explore what she sounded like when she was healthy. But she really gets to the point in that in that song cycle. Okay, Brigitte now Fassbender. we can talk about. <laughs> <laughs> this was brutal. I don't think I've ever seen. I, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever read something like this where, like, it was so aggressively anti Jonas. I felt really bad for him. I think it's just he, very German, as well. Yeah, I, 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 that, that is true. Direct. It, it it does it does translate very directly. But like, you know, leave Jonas alone. All he wants to do is sing like little operetta uh well, he has a new album of like movie Wagner. music now so yeah, yeah. exactly you just let him have his fun i mean uh, well she I'll knows honest, what it takes to run that festival she does she does and uh, i i will say though i had never heard of this uh earl festival yep. and before now we're talking Jonas. about it so and now we're talking about it so brigitte you know that's a, that's that's showbiz, baby. He's earning his paycheck already. We're giving that festival publicity right now. So I would love to have <laughs> either Jonas or Brigitte come on our show and uh, bash the other. So whenever you guys want to, I know you're both faithful listeners, but once you come on, we'll have you on. You can yell at each other to their heart's content. It'll be the best I think episode. She might be one of the most terrifying interviews that I can imagine. Oh, I, I, I'm convinced. Absolutely. Um, but I think it's going to be a, a good time. So stay tuned for that. Uh, if you, if anyone knows, yeah, I don't think of Jonas as somebody who, who would be like rude or would be good at like debating. He seems actually just very kind and generous. So nice dad. Energy, he's like the, you know? he's like the Joyce Donato of German tenors, you know, <laughs> That's so specific, but so true. <laughs> uh, let's talk about some uh, sadder uh, news here. Uh, Chautauqua and BAM. Um, obviously, uh, BAM, I think, is pretty self-explanatory. You know, uh, they're they're suffering from lack of donor money, especially. Well, here's, the, the, here's the difference. Yeah, BAM, yeah. BAM is, the, is the company that is always trying to push the envelope and bring international acts and, like, do new things and, right. like, develop. Right, right, right. So... It's this is really two sides of the coin, I guess. It's like b- both ends of the story. It's like one group, Chautauqua, is like just has this histor- history in the world of opera, in the world of training opera singers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's the I'm not- fourth oldest opera company in the country. Yeah, yeah. Chautauqua yeah. Opera, like that is it, a it's, long- a, it's a big deal. And it, it is it is outlived most of the Chautauquas across yeah. the United States. So, you know, it's this is basically this is like a, the the uh, canary in the coal mine, like these two organizations, both of which like serve very specific audiences in very in, in a way that's been on brand for themselves for yeah. a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, both are faltering. Uh, maybe Chautauqua will completely shut down, you know? Yeah. Uh, Bam, Bam, I'm a a little bit less worried about based on what they're doing. You know, obviously it's not good what's happening over there, but it's not. They they seem to be taking a much more, uh, I think, pragmatic approach. They don't have money. They need the money. They have a plan going forward. 
it, uh, Chautauqua, the Chautauqua board specifically was the one that made this decision, not really the company itself. And right. that's what worries me. Um, because yeah. and you know, they managed to. I mean, the first thing they get a little dig in is rising labor costs, which right. I I can tell you they are. If it's a summer program, they're almost guaranteed to be underpaying people. So I yeah. don't think that oh, they really absolutely. should be calling attention to that. Those yeah. labor costs that they're not paying. <laughs> Just a few weeks ago, we were talking about uh, Tulsa Opera having canceled. Did we talk about it in the show? Yeah, Tulsa Opera we did. Can- yeah, canceling their uh, season twenty three twenty four season. Um. And there was a conversation in the singing community about, uh, you know, there's some nasty comments uh, about how it's because Tulsa is too woke. And so the audience doesn't want doesn't want that woke stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. So Russell Thomas, friend of the show, uh, (laughs) when the Chautauqua announcement came out, I was like, well, they can't blame they can't blame Chautauqua being for being too woke. You know, Yeah, true. Yeah, it's very much an old institution, uh, and not necessarily in a, in a completely bad way. I feel like Chautauqua is one of those companies where, you know, uh, I mean, you, you know me. I like my new works. I think companies need to be moving towards new works that really speak to audiences. But Chautauqua, in my mind, is mainly a training ground, you know. Um, and for that, you know, it's I think it's fine to have some more war horses in there, Um but uh, yeah, it, it's just it, it, it it's giving me flashbacks to Arts Council England defunding ENO, right? Because it's it's just you know it's pulling the rug out very suddenly, not much of a lead in, uh, and it, it's possible within two seasons they're not going to have any real operas on stage anymore. I know they're they're planning on doing new works that are not going to be staged, but, but who they're knows leaving what that the, actually they're means, leaving the hall. Yeah, exactly. Traditionally done their shows and all of the like um, repertoire instruction is just going to be done in private now, it sounds like. Maybe maybe there's a scenes program here and there, but that's no substitute for doing a fully staged opera at a summer festival. And and there's something so, I I mean, I don't know how much our listeners might know about Chautauquas in general. There's something so weird about the the, and interesting about the vibe of the New York Chautauqua as a whole beyond the opera Well, because it's like a little coven. Yeah, it's, it's it's this little little cult of knowledge from the late nineteenth century, um, and it has this this long legacy attached to it, and it's genuinely a really interesting place to be. I saw a production of Chautauqua, then they did they did like Rose and Cavalier, which is a wild choice, but it was really interesting. Um, and it's just uh, you Not know wild it, because it's like uh, a new opera or like a no no wild because <laughs> no, it's all babies fully doing in the goop, it, you know it's fully yeah. in the goopy category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this, is, but it's a, uh, it's a, it's a fascinating place that that very much sort of elevates these like philosophical higher ideals of like education and like philosophy and like you know lectures and stuff like that. Um, but uh, you know, and opera seem to meld very nicely into that overall sort of view. So this feels almost like uh, a crack in the facade of this sort of last remaining large-scale Chautauqua itself, at least in my opinion. Um, well, this so. year they are, they are doing Sweeney Todd and The Tragedy of Carmen. So if you need those works <laughs> in your life, that's uh, you Yes, go. attend the tale, if you will. <sighs> but, you know... If you can. Yeah. <laughs> they can't anymore. Um, speaking of uh, of drama and things, uh, you know, going on. Oh my behind god! The scenes, yeah, this this Central City story popped up since our last just recording. Just when we since we thought were it off. was over. Yeah. 
Oh my God. They, they like, they defied expectations and George Cedarquist's expectations that they would end up canceling the whole season over this thing. And then this happens, Matt. Yeah. What so is they, going on? So ACMA, I guess, was vague booking about this a little bit on June 28th, which was since our last, uh, since, since our last recording, uh, due to the July 4th holiday that, that there were some un, savory things brewing there and today they released a little bit more information right before we were recorded which is that that unsavory uh the those unsavory items that they are complaining about are that central city opera has allegedly but seemingly pretty proven circumvented their Mm -hmm. collective bargaining agreement to hot to subcontract dancers which they should not be able to do under the agreement since dancers are members of agma the, yeah. they uh agma calls out that cco specifically tried to get some subcontract bargaining unit work included in the contract and they didn't it did not make it into the final version that the yeah. language there uh would would refer to only people who are not represented by agma so like they i mean they they say like if you wanted to hire some accountants as subcontractors that would be allowed because they are not union artists and right. so it seems like they lied pretty blatantly and then uh, wouldn't offer the those non-union dancers the same kinds of, like, work protections. Like, this has direct effects on the artists. They're not being offered housing the way that the, that the young artists who are under union contracts are. Um, they're being paid at a lower rate because they are not being mandated mm-hmm. to pay at the, at, the, um, at the fees that are laid out under the CBA. Um, they are not held to any kind of... Um, standards about how uh, about scheduling so they're apparently being hit with lots of last minute and repeated <sighs> scheduling changes these are all in the complaints mm. that agma filed uh with the nlrb and also they and the grievance is a separate complaint because that has to do uh with the fact that this is specifically for work that should be under the union contract yep yep it, it's it's just wild to me how blatant this is after one of the nastiest, you know, uh, union versus uh, company fights we've seen in the past several years um, that we thought was finally wrapped up. And, and the, it, I, it, it's it's mind boggling to me. Yeah. This feels on purpose and spiteful. <laughs> and like, you know, there's always a lot of fireworks during union negotiations. Like that's part of, of course, the game, of course, is yeah, that yeah. every is that both sides try to make their strongest case possible and meet somewhere in the middle but they signed a contract this is yeah, post this agreement is, this is wild yeah. to me yeah it it, it it truly truly is and the, and this is like this this is also one of those things where this is not like an accidental breach agreement where they didn't realize that they didn't ha- have to do this like no, this is dancers. this is on purpose this is obvious if you have ever seen a union contract in your life like this is this is on purpose. I, I feel pretty confident in saying allegedly, but um, you know, just let's just my, hope it doesn't go there. to the Supreme Court. <laughs> They'll be like, nope, all good here. Oi, oi! It's been one of those uh, decades. Uh, I, I think that the next thing we want to talk about here is Kathleen Battle's interactive kiosk. Yeah, she's kind of opening. Interacting. <laughs> I feel like I want to go to this thing to see what it would be like to be, you know, abused by Kathleen Battle. Like, <laughs> like, how can you make this interactive? Like, you know, she starts singing and then all of a sudden she stops and like the hologram of her like stares right at you. She's like, don't look at my mouth while I'm singing. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of my dressing room. I want this exactly. dressing room. 
it's it's an immersive experience. Yeah. I, I mean, or like I, I, or like you have to be Kathleen Battles like limo driver, and you have to like receive a phone call from her agent about to, to turn to, to turn the AC down. <laughs> Do you think we can send Toby here to get some intel for us? Oh, because he lives over there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, Wes. Oh, field you report from enemy of the show. Tobias, right? No, I think it's just extremely funny how she is not actually one of the one of the artists being added to this walk of fame she's just being featured there um and i don't i want to know what this kiosk is so bad like is it is it gonna i, I mean i love kathleen battle i'm just gonna say i've she was my first favorite singer when i was literally a baby i would uh you know my parents would play kathleen battle to to, to shut me up uh, and it worked. She was because uh, I love her silvery tone. That's like a, a common story I've heard of her being yeah, like yeah, the yeah. first singer. She was one of the first singers that I fell in love with, I think, because it's like such a straightforward voice. Like mm-hmm, you can appreciate mm-hmm. it without having a really big understanding of like classical technique. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call, we've got calls, they're bad, or possibly good. Oliver Camacho, which one is it? Good call to uh, Corinna defanesca Wolheim, uh, who did a story that's very much like what we have been doing over the past years by getting the perspectives of uh, opera singers who are parents and what the support system is, what the uh situation is like the working conditions are like for new parents especially mothers and they happen to also uh get uh interviews or comments from friends of the show like aaron morley isabel leonard christine gerke and a personal catherine lewick as well and a personal friend of mine who is the uh the featured artist uh in this story her name is maya kirani um, a beautiful uh, soprano who I would love to get on the show soon to talk to her about the experience of having your career blow up or at least your profile blow up because you are featured in the New York Times. Matt Cummings. Oh, by the way, that story, if you haven't seen it yet, is called What Opera Singers Gained and Lost Performing While Pregnant. All right, I'm done now. <laughs> now, Matt Cummings. I am going to claim uh, this absolutely incredible matrix that came out from Van Magazine this week of the F-Boys of Opera. Um, this article uh, very nimbly sidesteps the question of what even is an F-Boy. Uh, a, a definition that changes depending on the person using it and what they're talking about. Uh, but it tries to plot all of the horrible men of opera on the uh, on the axes of brilliance to despicability. And Amazing benignness to deadliness um and some of my favorite things that i want to call out here especially is uh the rossini almaviva sinking like a rock in terms of how despicable he is when you get to the <laughs> sequel in mozart version um and the fact that the massonet de Gria is just a little bit more pathetic than puccini which feels like uh the frenchest way to compare those two <laughs> operas uh, it's, it's, an, so... it's an absolutely extraordinary <laughs> matrix that you must, must see. I know, like, we always say, check the show notes and take a look. Please do find this. It's with Van Magazine. It's the I honestly funniest have thing I've ever seen. very few quibbles with their rankings. Like, they're pretty <laughs> spot on. <laughs> no notes. <laughs> no notes. No notes. There may be a little hard on Verter's brilliance versus how despicable he is, but, you know, your taste may vary. 
<laughs> I have a little good call for all you George Benjamin uh, 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 Crimp, Martin Crimp fans out there, just like me. There's, uh, of course, they're the team behind such uh, cl- modern classics as uh, um, Written on Skin, uh, Lessons in uh, uh, Love and Violence. Written on Skin actually just had its uh, uh, 10th anniversary of its premiere just a, so both not bops. too long ago. Both bops. I love them. Um, honestly, written on skin might be my, it, it's in my top three operas. It's probably the first so time far. it's ever been described as a bop. Oh, I, I, I actually, <laughs> this is actually true. Uh, I, I promise uh, there was a little post on Instagram from, um, I want to say like English National Opera or something that was celebrating the 10th anniversary of written on skin. And I did comment that it was a bop. Uh, I'm just that person in real life as well, uh, for all you listeners out there. Um, so this is a, there's a little New York Times article that is detailing the uh, the new opera that they put together, Picture a Day Like This, uh, which is premiered, which I believe premiered last week. I don't know how it's good it is. Rave, but I rave it's reviews. Great. Rave reviews. Rave reviews. Yeah. Um, but it's a um, friend of the show. Uh, John Brancy is star. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, this is a little New York Times article, which is kind of a review, kind of also a retrospective of their uh, career, Martin Crimp and George Benjamin together. Um, and they, uh, you know, Crimp is such an interesting librettist. He always is doing something a little funky, a little weird, like, you know, doing everything in third person in Written on Skin and, uh, uh, and I believe in Lessons of Love and Violence too. And and uh, George Benjamin is just a perfect collaborator to just create these really interesting soundscapes. And, uh, you know, just reading this little review really got me pumped for the new opera and I hope it gets a good recording. I would love a studio recording. Um, I'm still waiting for my studio recording of uh, Lessons of Love and Violence, but, you know, we can't have everything. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, not on Stitcher. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. Find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. And that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS on our donate page. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. The creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. For co-hosts Matt Cummings and our guest Morris Robinson, I'm the audio editor and host, Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you concede to the event culture where big names count more than artistic quality in itself. We're back with an all-new show next week, plus you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more performances covered by Andreas Schager. Join us.